continue our talk here into the human condition and we thought to move into the thing called the Vita Activa and the modern age or these two separate things starting out with the uh, ch on chapter uh, 6 and the section section 35 or subchapter or, or whatever world alienation uh -huh. so this she starts out by stating three great events stand at the threshold of the modern age and determine its character the discovery of America and the ensuing exploration of the whole earth, the Reformation, which by expropriating ecclesiastical and monastic possessions started the twofold process of individual expropriation and the accumulation of social wealth, the invention of the telescope and the development of a new science that considers the nature of the earth from the viewpoint of the universe. So in each one of these instances we see uh, a sort of reliance in some part whether it be on navigation uh, or, you know, to science more generally, I don't know what the technical terms would be, uh, moving into the realm of science and what role that necessarily serves in not only conducting knowledge, but of conducting this thing called the human condition or moving past it in, in any sort of way like that. So this is where we're going to think about the Archimedean point that we began with, which is that shifting of a point, or rendering the Archimedean point away from the Earth towards that yeah. outside the Earth, which is extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. And I, every time I read this, I, I wonder greatly what, she, what the implications of this really are, because I have, a sort, I have a tendency to just kind of want to apply something of an elastic band to this thing called the Earth or this thing called the human that can be applied anywhere. So, in space, it doesn't matter where it goes, as long as it kind of remains uh, stretched and it doesn't break. I don't know what breaking would be like. That'd probably be like a, an apocalypse or something like that. But as long as humans are involved or anything like that, like we're still working within the parameters of this thing called the human condition. So what is it about this shift in the Archimedean point for you, Andrew, from the Earth to the outside that marks something of a shift? Or what is it about it that, that is interesting for our end? Um, well, for our end in the Beta Activa and the Modern Age section, it's not that the Archimedean point is located outside the Earth. It's that with, with people like Descartes and the rationalist philosophical movement, if one could describe it as a movement, has inserted the Archimedean point within the, uh, the human mind. And this is what she's trying to get at in the section, in section 39, on introspection and the loss of common sense, of that human thought or human action is no longer about what takes place in the world, but rather what happens in, in the brain of these thought processes about which one can be certain. Because, it, because in Descartes, there's a kind of destruction of the world through doubt. Um, that can only be ensured, ensured th through um, this 
kind of very expedient belief in um, a decent God. Um, so that's where Arendt is trying to go with the Archimedean point in this section, especially with the um, the event of the invention of the telescope, where what, how does she put this? She puts it something along the lines of what has always remained outside the realm of human perception has been um, introduced to human perception through this uh, tool, which means that everything becomes measurable to what can be um, experienced in one's own mind. Yeah, I have a, I have a passage here that I yeah. think it's the one you're referring to, or it's yeah. pretty close. In the experiment, man realized his newly won freedom, freedom from the shackles of earthbound experience. Instead of observing national phenomena, natural, not national, phenomena, as they were given to him, he placed nature under the conditions of his own mind, that is, under conditions won from a universal, astrophysical viewpoint, a cosmic standpoint outside nature itself. Mm -hmm. So that, I guess, universal uh, objective gaze from, from the outside. Mm -hmm. Which can be placed anywhere. <coughs> if you think about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all about what, which place is most convenient for the particular yeah. goal. Yeah, there's a, there's a passage that I uh, can't find, but it goes as, uh, as follows, where for RN, taking apart the Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic, Ptolemaic system, the PTO. Oh, yeah, 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 no, I, know, I know what you mean indeed. I thought you were talking about uh, Talmud or something, and I was like, whoa, no, how do you <laughs> I didn't realize she was discussing the Talmud in this book. Uh, I'm a new... That would be very cool if she was talking about the Talmud, though. How do you pronounce that term, though? Uh, to uh, Ptolemaic? To Ptolemaic, yeah. Yeah, okay, so. alright. That's like the before the Copernican. Yeah, exactly. System. Yeah, yeah. So what she says about that, and I, I can't find that, it's annoying me. Uh, in order to destabilize the Archimedean, or the Ptolemaic point, we actually didn't need a written... To rely on like scientific advancements to give us the telescope or to give yeah. us anything like this, we could have arrived at that point via uh, reason mm -hmm. or via the human mind itself. So she says that it's yeah. kind of odd that we have ascribed to the, like these uh, these developments, technological developments, this mm -hmm. sort of um, transcendent transcendental status or this sort of privilege in that movement of the human mind or cognition. I think she says something along the lines of ideas can't change the world, but events do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I have no idea where, where she might have put that. Yeah. Um, but I know exactly where you're, what you're referring to. Um, right. I, 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 I found it here. It says, okay. She says that it seems astronomers needed no telescope to assert that, contrary to all sense experience, it is not the sun that moves around the earth, but the earth that circles the sun. If, this is, if the historian looks back upon these beginnings, with all the wisdom and prejudices of hindsight, he is tempted to conclude that no empirical confirmation was needed to abolish the Ptolemaic system. We could, have done, we could have done it ourselves, right, yeah. in, in, in that way. We didn't actually need to rely on these, uh, I guess, on these, on these technological developments to take that apart. But these serve, and this, this opens up another kind of odd part in, in RN's text, because 
the fabrication of these instruments, notably the telescope or anything mm -hmm. like that, is at the hands of Homo Faber, mm -hmm. right? So the working individual serves something of a role in the construction of these these tools that are then used by certain people that can, you know, be great or can then be excellent by the use of those very tools. When for her, she doesn't, I, in my mind, and I, I hope you'll correct me if I'm wrong, she doesn't want to just say that that is the case, where she doesn't want to say that we can just simply ascribe onto that moment or of the development of the telescope by the hands of Homo Faber and then used by a sort of by Galileo or Copernicus or whatever, we cannot say that that is an extension of that Greek experience or of that human condition experience between labor, work, and then and then action. Because now we've entered into this realm of this, the scientific or or whatever term we could we could place there, and that has had a significant impact on what it means to be that very human figure, mm -hmm. that very human. Um, Thing. I don't know what you think about that. If that if that's fair to say, it's um, all associated with the condition of what she calls world alienation. Yeah. Um, the difference between the Greek thinkers saying, "Oh, maybe the Earth moves around the sun," and the invention and use of the telescope is that the world is no the earth I suppose um, is no longer the most important point in the life of the human being it's an arbitrary location um, rather than um, an artifice that we've created and to which we belong and to which we should contribute uh, through labour work or action. And she kind of makes, I don't know how um, justifiable this conceptual move is but she makes the move from Galileo to Descartes right um, and her argument is well Descartes kept up with the progress of Galileo Galileo was really what inspired Descartes to continue with his product and that's the that was the catalyst for most modern philosophy which expresses in philosophical terms the experience of world indignation definitely for definitely with Cartesian doubt um, and also with the, the, the Kantian argument about the thing in itself um, where the where the world remains outside of human experience to a degree um, where were we going? I, don't, I, I, I was, I, I, I I was wondering about thinking like just transposing these elements of the human condition with work 
labor and and action Aye. onto another uh, epoch. And onto another say, epoch and uh, like which or like epoch? I was th- I was thinking about the uh, relationship uh, between the no Copernicus and Homo Faber, the person that constructs the telescope. But mm-hmm. I, I I can put it in a, in another way. Um, how can we say that excellence does not manifest itself today still? Because there are the you know, celebrities. Yeah, there yeah, are, yeah, yeah. Well, but then there are it's... like super celebrities. Like everyone knows who. Now I'm blank. Yeah, no, I'm, well, I mean the, 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 Michael Jackson. Well, we, we, we were discussing this the other day, and um, how um, Jordan Peterson is described as the best. Yeah, uh, Canadian yeah. public intellectuals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 um, Jordan, I mean, if we were to make a kind of ironic argument, uh, Jordan Peterson doesn't exist. He exists for the purposes of selling books. Yeah, you know, he, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he's the uh, the intellectual of labour. Right. I guess. I mean, it, 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 and I think one can really say that about. Um, Intellectual figures since let's say the nineties. Let's say the nineties. Let's let's pick out an arbitrary decade. But um, where thinkers come and go pretty easily, and it's all about that. Oh, uh, well, let me put this another way. In the same way that um, Arendt talks about the downfall of philosophers. She writes that they are either um, coming up with um, notions of epistemology that scientists don't need, or they're merely mouthpieces of the zeitgeist, as Hegel uh, would have them. Well, I, I need to try and figure out where that piece is because it's uh, pretty integral to what she's. Okay, so here we go. Um, so she talks about the uh, modern age as the era where philosophy came to play second and even third fiddle because Descartes was following the discoveries of Galileo. And she writes that the philosophers became either epistemologists worrying about an overall theory of science, which the sciences, uh, scientists did not need, or they became indeed what Hegel wanted them to be, the organs of the zeitgeist, the mouthpieces in which the general mood of the time was expressed with conceptual clarity. Um, in both instances, whether they looked upon nature or upon history, they tried to understand and come to terms with what happened without them. Um, and this is the complete loss of what she conceived, what she describes as the vita contemplativa. No one really believes in eternal truths anymore um, and, and the scientists or mathematicians who could probably express are really the only people who could express what might be close to eternal truths nowadays just don't I guess because of the way that um, contemporary science pro- progresses um, and how each overall theory is supplanted by another one um, so there's always that contingency within the science and mathematics as right um, as an activity, um, and it, it, it does feel like philosophy 
need to fall into each of those two um, subdivisions. Either you're an analytic philosopher who's doing bioethics, or you're uh, you go into continental philosophy and try to figure out how uh, Marx was right in the 21st century. Right. Um, and, I don't f f and, and there's no one who is doing what Socrates did, or like like Aristotle did in in, in the same class. What, what would that look? I mean, oh, I mean, what, yeah, what 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 would that look like? I mean, if, 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 what what what. what I mean, we referred to Jordan Peterson earlier, and like he definitely falls into the zeitgeist camp because he's like a politically convenient. Yeah, he's a charlatan. Figure. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, that that's how like he is in. You know, I, I, like, and also like Zizek and like the people who are actually. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like Zizek is <laughs> here <laughs> or there, but like, like we could name a bunch of other philosophers who were definitely in the kind of uh, vocalizing the zeitgeist camp. Yeah. Because in um, and this uh, and, and on another note, this is why Arendt identifies as a theorist rather than a philosopher. So she's 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 excluded yeah, yeah, from she, this. Yeah, because she wouldn't she wouldn't say that to herself. Like she's yeah, able to be. transcend this or yeah. something. But like I think of someone like um, like Steven Pinker. He, he's oh yeah, 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 he's definitely a zeitgeister. Like, but he has all these interesting ideas about the fundamental human human truths or anything like that. That. Like, it's almost like those are false truths, right? Because at, at the one time, yeah. at, at least, I, I think Arendt would say so as well, would be like, no, nah, this is oh, propaganda oh, garbage. Oh, like, well, this, is, well, this is also Adorno and Horkheimer, like, it, the uh, state of enlightenment today is this kind of false clarity yeah. of this um, really um, facile uh, sense of realism. Yeah, like 12 basic rules for life. Yeah, like, exactly, go fuck yeah. yourself. Like, what, you can reduce this down to 12 rules? Like, I, yeah. I think not, my friend. But, um, there, there's this moment here, and I, and I want to take this passage to think about the way that Which science, uh, 268, at the beginning of the okay. part 37, universal versus natural science, where she writes that only we and we only for hardly more than a few decades have come to live in a world thoroughly determined by a science and a technology whose objective truth and practical know-how are derived from cosmic and universal as distinguished from terrestrial and natural laws, and in which a knowledge acquired by selecting a point of reference outside the earth is applied to earthly nature and the human artifice. So in what way then do we, through this sort of scientific endeavor, lay claim to an, an almost these universal truths mm -hmm. that are perhaps more universal than they've ever been like we have you know we have certain knowledges about the earth itself about perhaps about people with like statistics yet are so far from the truth in in the same respect if we can accept Arendt's thesis like at least in concerning the Socratic way to truth or something like that where it's not so much truth based on reason or a truth based on what these old philosophers may have come up with, but it's a truth based on this, as, as you uh, stated from Adorno and Horkheimer, this kind of like false clarity or this yeah. uh, something like that that doesn't actually require any sort of reason, but it falls into the realm of facts. Yeah. And then it's from there we can take them in and say, oh, and then really oppressive shit can come from that. Mm -hmm. And this is very much apparent, not just today, but you know the time of writing this. Like we were saying earlier, uh, when we were, when we took a little break, like 
Arendt was a refugee coming from, you know, that totalizing scheme of, of, of fascism that just mm-hmm. wanted to eradicate difference in mm-hmm. any way it could, under the aegis of a sort of scientific pretension mm-hmm. towards superiority or whatever. So I don't really have a question to to attach to that, but off the top of my head, on the cusp of of fainting, to what extent then does this thing called science differ from this old philosophical reasoning in, in the attainment of truth or in that sort of process? I think that with science, especially the way that it's practiced today, is based in novelty. And I mean, this is the problem that's sort of faced the scientific community since the 50s, whether they acknowledge or not, when the academic journal industry became much more profitable. Of people had to publish research to get professorial positions. Yeah. And if you wanted to publish research, you needed to come up with something new. So this is why we get all of those like studies of like chocolate causes cancer, chocolate prevents cancer. Yeah. Ch- chocolate has no effect on cancer uh-huh. whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so 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 we have all of this sort of trivial accumulation of knowledge. Yeah. Which. Uh, no one can really make sense of because, to a certain degree, it's contradictory. Um, people cite it in their um, own articles because that's how the scientific community is able to publish articles. You need to make sure that there's uh, a basis in the literature but yeah. apart from, uh, to, to, to um, put forward your own research. Um, whereas with philosophy, um, I mean, in theory and literature nowadays, because we've absorbed this kind of um, uh, journal-oriented culture from the sciences, it's a lot more grounded because we feel like we need to have a, a methodology. I mean, it, well, I, 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 I'm like on a side note, which makes me feel like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. <laughs> uh, that, that, that whole thing is like built into the institution of the university since the Cold War where each department had to explain how it was more scientific uh, yeah. but because it was completely tied in with uh, research funding because the US didn't want to be behind the USSR in the development of science um, and then that uh, US university culture because it had so much money behind it ended up influencing uh, or definitely Canada and also Europe which is also a trigger of the student revolts in the 60s and 70s but we'll save that for a different podcast, maybe called like uh, "The Truth Is Out There." Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just, uh, Alex Jones has it right. Yeah, you gotta listen to these. You gotta take these people seriously. Yeah, yeah indeed. No, um, I, uh, well, no, I mean not Alex Jones, but you know the Unabomber, definitely. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, where was I? I mean, with the sciences, they have. Um, it's definitely with the sciences. The aim is just to have a process idea of what it means to get to truth, um, and it reacts with different discoveries at certain points along the way, and just keeps on going, keeps on going. Whereas 
philosophical truth um, in the Vita Contemplativa, it's eternal, it doesn't change, it always remains the same. Um, there's this model of how things should be. There's this essence of justice, there's this essence of what is good. Um, which, I mean, in the way that the dialogues unfold in, in Plato, you never get to do it, do it, you always elude you. Um, but, but, but also in this idea of action. I think, which is also um, a part of what it means to be a theorist, of talking to others um, in a place where we are equals. Um, and really the aim of society at large is to create a space, this interesse. Um, so really, really we, on a side note, we could create that space in an egalitarian way um, but the, the pragmatics of that is not outlined in this book and I don't think that Grant would subscribe to it but I think it's a possible application of her ideas um, it is the philosophical exploration is the truth that we establish amongst ourselves um, or, the, or the ideas that endure throughout throughout time, past immortality. Whereas with science, it's it will, it will keep on going, regardless. This is why I had the distinction between thought, cognition, and logic uh, in this book is, is pertinent, because while thought is endless with the idea of, with the phenomenon of natality, every new birth brings someone new into this world, a unique perspective. Um, so thought is really endless in that respect, whereas logic is unstoppable. Nothing will change the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and in this, in this scientific um, view, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not this even equation that then balances out into a 4, but it's 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then what you can do with that 4 is add 4 to it, and then it's 8, and you can add 8 to that, and then 16, and add 16 to that, and then it's 32. It's, uh, with science and Arendt's perception, it's this, it's this met metabolic process like labour. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the, the way she states that specifically is that um, since it followed closely upon the discovery of the Archimedean point and the concomitant rise of Cartesian doubt has been the reversal of the hierarchical order between the Vita Contemplativa and the Vita Activa. Mm -hmm. So in that way, the kind of how there is a sort of reliance on or there's a sort of comfort in knowing that 2 plus 2 will always equal 4 mm -hmm. and you keep going on in that way. I'm sorry, I didn't want right. to. I didn't mean to, to mess you up there. I feel like you're on a roll. No, no, no. I, 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 I've rolled off it. Yeah, because I wonder for my own part what is. I, because I have. You know, I just read The Republic for the first time recently. Uh, and I, I'm sorry for you. 
<laughs> I know, I know, I know. Well, no, it's, it's actually quite fun. I mean, it, it, it doesn't... I love the beginning. I love oh, yeah. the beginning when, when, you know, Socrates is tearing apart their arguments, but then when he goes into laying out in society, I'm like, yeah. oh, God, this is boring. But at the same time, well, it, it is boring, but I'm, I wonder to what extent there is more of a risk posed, and by risk I mean, like, <laughs> a, a risk I mean by, like, the loss the, the literal loss of human life in the absorption or the uh, kind of acceptance of a fundamental set of human attributes and that if anything falls outside of it it's derivative it's it's messed up mm -hmm. or this kind of um because I'm just following our rent where she sees mm -hmm. a fundamental difference between that realm of thought like the old philosophers and then science, or in the way that science professes these kind of universal truths, apparently, in some way, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or whatever, this, mm -hmm. these, these kind of unchanging, um, you know, ideas, which of these pose more of a risk to this thing called humanity? Where, whereas for me, I think that, as you said before, how that reason was that thing that was kind of open up to change, or was that the term you used? Like that. that yeah, right, right. Why, if, if you consider the fact of natality and yeah, well, people yeah. entering the public sphere all the time, so I mean, perspectives can change on who is participating. Exactly. In yeah. Dimension. So, in w which one of those poses more of a, a risk, and which one of those is perhaps the better option? It depends whether you prioritize mortality or immortality. Is life the highest good, or is <laughs> I don't know, because uh, then you... Then but, 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 could, could, but, because we both live in this paradigm where life is the highest good. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So, so, totally. Yeah, yeah, but, but the biopolitical type type realm, for sure. Like, oh, yeah. it, there is nothing more than my extending my life as long as I possibly can. And that's simply it. Live, you know, keep, keep calm and carry on type yeah. thing. Like, just do your thing. Which is why Rent wrote this book, because without this book, the kind of the immortality of the highest good would have just completely died off, and we'd never talk about it. So, for do you think then that it was our this transition or starting to think about life in terms of mortality that spurred on? you know, the atrocious events of the, uh, the early 20th century, because she, she's very much, this is very much in the back of her head, I think, like, mm -hmm. you know, she just left yeah. Germany, well, I guess a few years ago, this is the mid-50s? Yeah, mid-50s, I, I wonder if... Hear me out on this. I, I will. The <laughs> origins of totalitarianism came out before this. Yeah. And that's her book about Europe. Yeah. The Human Condition is her book about North America. Okay. Would it, like insofar, insofar as it wouldn't have been possible for her to write this if she hadn't observed. No, I, I, I think she's talking about the danger of the type of society that, that the United she saw States there. Yeah. had become. Because so, I mean, you, you, you read her comments on that society, and you're like, 
She's writing in the United States in the fifties. Yeah, that, 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 that's what she. That, that's but not the in example like in her head. Adornian type way either, though. This was something a little bit different than the, than the just simple. I, 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 I think for her the time scale was much larger. Yeah, sure. With, with, with Adorno, he was thinking about like achromatic music that he was writing in Austrian <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. early 20th century. Jazz sucks. Uh, yeah, indeed. It just satisfies you too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas with the rent, it's like... It's the... It's, it's a book of someone from Europe trying to cling on to what makes... or what makes sense to her in a society that doesn't make sense to her. So if I could I frame this another way, what do you think, or where would fascism, or um, the, you know the Third Reich, would fall in the, in her framework here? Would, in in the human condition specifically. Yeah, in this kind of distinction between you know the the scientific type thinking and the old philosopher type thinking or whatever, like these both claims for. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I just need to borrow. Or if you from, want to open I, up a new category, like please I, do. I, I need to borrow from Origins of Totalitarianism briefly. But where she talks about, I think I got it right here. No, she, you've yeah. got it over there. It's um, over there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think too, too many books. Yeah. Um, it's embarrassing. But she, she, she talks in the final chapter. She talks about ideology as the logic of an idea. Yeah. And nothing can get in the way of that idea. Mm-hmm. And it, it, this is why she talks. This is why she identifies logic with labor of life will just keep on going. Um, there's no end to it. It's just, it just, it'll just power on through. Um, and with the way that science is exercised in the modern age, um, it's just the, the, the following of uh, a logical idea. And also the erosion of uh, what can be described as the public realm. Because I think that's well, and also in the section about the public and the private realm, where she describes this rise of the social as an way of administering society as if it were a household, um, and she identifies the household as this place of violence, this place of inequality, and that's what fascism is. To an extent, it's this leader who's um, in complete control of the way that a society is run. And also it links to Plato in her uh, conception, where she describes an action of how he viewed uh, humankind as material to be worked on. So the Republic is um, an act of fabrication rather than a, a form of action. So, for, I mean, so for, 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 if I can sort of come up with a kind of shoddy Marxism, Marxism, Marxism. There we Maxim. go. There we go. Um, for, 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 fascism treats the realm of action as if it were the realm of fabrication. Okay. Yeah. It's it's all about treating people as material rather than yeah, yeah, agents. for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and that would allow them to be not only consumed, but ex but uh, disposed of at the yeah. same time, which is where the... Well, there's, there's, and within that schema, it's, there's a, a rift between those who know and those that do. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 
Oh yeah, and, and, and this is also what she kind of writes about in the banality of evil, in the sense of people who are able to do without thinking. People who are able to do evil without thinking about it. In a sense of thought as a dialogue with oneself. Right, because you know, the claim that they were just following or whatever. But let's, if we think of ancient Greece and you know there are moments in the Republic when they're you know Socrates is giving the suggestion that if if among the guardians if, if a father fucks his daughter or something and, yeah. and she gives birth they must kill the kill the child shit like that like yeah. eugenics present in uh, in all that stuff it seems like a pretty messed up sort of uh, formulation right I well I mean yeah I mean to, to an extent um, I mean Arendt talks about this I'm trying to finds the place where she would uh, do this. Uh, where are we? Let's have a little look. Um, so yeah, what, what were we talking about? We are talking about Plato in the past, if you was. Um, and... Because it seems like these people... Where, 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 where he's writing about the Republic is, in a certain sense, the way that he conceives politics is how the individual should conduct their life. Um, as Arendt writes um, uh, about Plato's insistence that the city-state must be considered to be a man writ large and from his construction of a psychological order which actually follows the public order of his utopian city but is even more manifest in the grandiose consistency with which he introduced the principle of domination into the intercourse of man himself. The supreme criterion of fitness for ruling others is, in Plato, and in the aristocratic condition of the West, the capacity to rule oneself. Just as the philosopher king commands the city, the soul commands the body, and the reason commands the passions. And in this conception of what an ideal society should look like, I don't think it admits plurality in any way whatsoever. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't think it does that. But, like, I... Because we could spend all day... Well, I can, I, I like to poke holes in it, but it's a... It's a weak poking of holes, I will admit. I just throw the, these epistemological type, or these epistemic uh, hand grenades, and try to say, like, Oh, you didn't consider this, man! Like, uh, but it... It seems like there is a really glaring... Um, omission here in considering the like the role that eugenics played in consolidating this kind of ideal Greek state that she's so mm. fond of. That I wonder what would be, what would be better, like this kind of mass society, because we don't know where mass society will lead, right? Because I'm thinking that she's prepared to say, or she would be prepared to say that mass society would inevitably lead to that sort of ultimate, you know, end point, that sort of destruction of just like the end of life if it hasn't already occurred because it would be it would be naive to assume that just because human beings are still like alive like physically that that means that they're still alive mm -hmm. as far as contemplation goes as far as being philosophical beings or active beings goes and i really wonder what is worse like the the actual loss of life or the loss of that ability to be political agents or active agents 
And I don't know, we can't solve this problem now. Well, I mean, but it, it, it's back to the question of is mortality the highest good or is immortality the highest good? You have to decide. And if, if, if yeah. you come down on one side, then um, you have to, whatever follows from that, you have to um, stick with. Yeah. Oh, God. Like Sophie's choice, right? I mean, there's a, yeah, but, but for a wrench, you know, these are like fundamental human yeah. questions. This is the, this is why she titles that the human condition is like, okay, I can only really talk about labor, work, and action. And she, as, as I've said before, she says, I'm not going to talk about thought. I'm not going to talk about thought at all. But she keeps on bringing it up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's constantly yeah. on her mind. Um, and especially the relationship between the Homer Faber and thought too. Um, yeah, for sure. And and that uh, you know the concluding line of the of the book when, when well, yeah, the, 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 where she said where she uh, has the Cato quote. Yeah, never is he more active than when he is when he does nothing. Never is he less alone than when he's by himself. So implicating I'm, that mode of thought, right, in that very uh -huh. in the very passage, it's it's. I think it requires all of the um, all of these prerequisites that she outlines in the book. Yeah, it requires labor, it requires work, it requires action, it requires the public sphere, and definitely requires the public realm too. Um, you need to have a space in the world to which you can retreat from public affairs and within which you can be with yourself and conduct this dialogue with oneself. Yeah. Um, which is how she conceives thought itself. Um, yeah, for sure. But, but, but she, she also understands that thought must be communicated to others and you can either do that through the work of art um, or through writing through the through the form of the book so so in that capacity I wonder what or what options are left to us because the, the way you just framed it it seems as though there are kind of there there are possibilities right and mm -hmm. you know being able to writing is po possibly one such possibility but then we're also surrounded by garbage like even in this realm of philosophy, or at least what mm -hmm. we what we've given that that title, and it makes me wonder, what, you know, just, just say it again. What options are left to us at this point to sort of maintain this idea of the human condition that Arendt has laid out, if that is even possible, or is it like mm -hmm. we're we're screwed, where we've gone too far in this realm of the masses, or in mass society more generally. I wonder about what we're doing right now, because I mean we're sitting in the in the same room together and discussing this philosophical text and really getting, really diving into these deep issues, um, and her advocacy for the public realm, uh, for this durable space of the world, is to ensure that this. This interesse between us yeah. Keep, it, yeah. It keeps on going, um, and it doesn't just kind of evaporate as soon as it comes to an end. Yeah. Um, 
and she appreciates that you know you gotta you gotta feed yourself. <laughs> you gotta have a you 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 have to have, have have dinner at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but before you can have these conversations. Yeah, the dream of all academics. Like, is there gonna be food tonight? I yeah, don't know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, you need to take care of these sort of very basic um, needs. Um, but then there are these points where we can sort of come together and speak together um, and disclose what we think in private, disclose who we are to one another um, through our speech and through our action, which is distinct from what we are yeah. uh, for our rent. Exactly. So there, there is the possibility then of but, realizing but, this phenomenon today, right, by, mm. by a sort of transposition, right, just kind of taking sort of same parameters, the same kind of characteristics indicative of labor work or action and applying, to the, applying them to the ways in which they may be realized today, mm-hmm. you know, because for us it's like labor is like, uh, because at least for us, like, you know, people in, in school, like, we're pretty well taken care of. We have shelter, yeah. basic food, stuff like that. So, like, labor is really like, oh, my God, am I going to get, you know, that little extra bit yeah. of funding or, or whatever? But, like, but, 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 but also bear in mind that the, the, the reason that we're able to... The reason we're able to enjoy this privilege is because... There are people, you know, oh, yeah. who are fighting for minimum wage at Tim yeah. Hortons and all of that sort yeah. of stuff. I didn't, the, I didn't the, build the, this house. Like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We are dependent on this um, sort of web of yeah. activity. Um, so, I mean, I think that this is something I kind of find frustrating when people uh, go go against, like, uh, Hannah Arendt in seminars. And, like, she's all about this kind of slave uh, morality. Like, well, we, so are we. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the whole uh, the whole activity of coming together to um, speak about these texts nowadays is predicated on a very exploitative system. Yeah. Um, and um, I mean, uh, w- 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 with Hannah Arendt, there's a question of whether she deems it as something that's always going to be there or something that could be replaced by machines. She talks about automation during the book. Um, and sort of finds it a problematic prospect because we live in the society of job holders. Um, and, uh, and we were discussing this earlier over um, dinner of, um, well, I mean, let me indulge in the personal anecdote. Well, 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 when I came here before I started my PhD, I, uh, I was uh, meeting uh, friends of my uh, landlord and they asked me uh, what my PhD was in. I was like, yeah, I'm studying, uh, I'm doing theory and criticism. And their first question was not like, oh, so, so, so what, does, what does that mean? Or like, what's your research? Or what interests you? It's like, what are you planning to, what kind of job are you planning to get after that? I'm like, it's four years at minimum. I, 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 I have no idea what kind of job I'm going to. I don't even know um, what I'm going to write about yet. Oh yeah, like, the, 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 what, what job I'm going to secure? I mean, the, 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 no one really knows what they're going to be doing for uh, four years. Uh, in the next four years, after the next four years in their life. But the, for, 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 for Arendt, she's worried about a society where people can't think or, do, or can't um, imagine the, the freedom one might have in 
four years of sort of theoretical inquiry without needing the assurance that there's a job at the end of it. Yeah. Um, and this is why she's worried about automation because she knows that people um, associate their self-esteem with their work or attribute more meaning to uh, holding a job than it's worth. Yeah. Because these, you know, whatever we'd consider to be work today does not fit into the same kind of human condition categories that she's laid out, mm -hmm. or, or it doesn't give us that same sort of connection to not only ourselves, to the world, and I, you know, we take from Marx in that way. Um, anyway, except for the artist. Um, she writes about the artist as being this, uh, this only refuge from the absorption of the homo faber into, into labor, which is an which is an argument that m might not have survived the pop art movement or like New York in the 80s, where the art market was pretty rapacious uh -huh. and artists were very conscious of the art artists were very conscious of their work as commodities and especially with people like uh, Warhol kind of provocatively um, reflected on that commodification of art, especially in like a piece like Money, which is just a, a painted dollar sign and it sells for, for millions. Um, so, so, uh, but, 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 but she writes about art as being arbitrarily priced. So that's, that, that's another thing. I mean, I, I do like this idea of the artist as being this um, uh, identity beyond commerce and something that might survive this society of labourers, which is also the kind of direction that Marx and Engels go in the German ideology. But I think that since the 80s and the 90s, and definitely into the last two decades, um, the artist has become more of an entrepreneur and more about what well, especially what Foucault describes as the um, entrepreneurship of the self and this kind of embodiment of human capital in the sense of the monetization of that which should not be monetized. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so I think her, her, her last refuge from labor has been uh, infiltrated. Yeah, 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 for sure, and it, it 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 makes me pessimistic. Like you, you were you gave a you gave a nice idea about about what we're doing here. Yeah. But breaking out of the bounds of not because it's one thing if we were to take like a sort of Marxist approach, I think it would be more clear as to what would mm -hmm. constitute like an anti-capitalist um, mode of being. Mm -hmm. Whereas with this, it's I'm I have. I, for my own part, I have trouble understanding, or not understanding, I have trouble kind of imagining that possibility of being outside of that thing that she claims that we're in now. Like, mm -hmm. we, we can do this now, but would, we, would you and I be talking about this if it wasn't being recorded and for, like, whatever other oh, yeah, purpose? Yeah. Like, there, there, of course, we're, we go to the bar or whatever, we talk yeah, about yeah, this yeah. stuff. But, they, it's but it definitely has a sort of expediency to it, and it's, yeah. uh, 
Oh, I mean, as we're talking in the break, I mean, doing this podcast looks good on your CD when you're applying. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. No, there, there, there's, there are other things attached to this for sure. Which is, I don't know. This is the the problematic of the Homo Faber, if the struggle between means and ends, if what happens when ends can be taken up as means again. Yeah. So yeah. this conversation is not. I mean, to, to take the example of, you know, and say that you talk about this in a cover letter for a teaching position, it's no longer, this conversation is no longer an end in itself, it's no longer this um, kind of merely theoretical discussion, it's a, it's a selling point. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a means for something else. Um, and the people of action are supposed to secure the meaningfulness of this activity so it's no, no, not just understood as an object that one could use for something else yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but for rent you only put people who are using action in the in a certain sense of the scientists who are introducing processes into the in, in, into the world that weren't there before um, I, 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 and this is why the disappearance of the public sphere is a tragic thing, I suppose, because it isn't. It, but that space was a place where um, meaning could be agreed upon, and it would be stabilized in that right. space. Yeah. Um, so what do what we we are doing would have that kind of meaning. This kind of uh, ideal of liberal education of this non-efficacious uh, learning mm-hmm. that really has no other point than to uh, develop uh, citizenship yeah for and, sure uh, and, uh, and humane intellect um, which, which also really if you think about how liberal education was conceived in the mid 20th century the idea of liberal education as creating citizenship was just really another means to an end and it was a way to uh, resist communism yeah yeah no exactly <laughs> exactly at all costs yeah, we yeah. have to resist this but so I think it, it is it, I mean it, she's right in the book it's it's a real struggle to decide what counts as an end Can, can you say more on that? I'm, 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 I think I'm on your, the same wavelength as you, but I, I don't know. Um, well, in the sense of, like... Well, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, like, this conversation, this podcast, is not just an end in itself if you choose to use this podcast as uh, yeah, an example another, of, your, yeah. of your professional skills in... Yeah. Uh, academia and then use that to post uh, to go for a job um, so what what is meaningful is something that cannot be utilized for another purpose and I think this is what she's trying to get in the work of art because these are the most worldly of objects in the sense that they cannot be used um, 
for, for, for another but they, they exist for their own purpose and I think she's writing about a specific m milieu that after this book this gets completely exploded I mean, it almost kind of exploded before she writes this book if you consider surrealism and dada and futurism yeah um, I mean she, she, she's got this very kind of it's not a romantic idea of what art is. Probably more like a Renaissance idea of what art is. Um, because otherwise, art would subscribe then to that thing that we we're how we were talking about this scientific you know, two plus two is four type thing, where you know there's that there's that progress to it. It you know it's part of a greater system in some form or other. But the, you're saying that the work of art for Arendt is something that stands not only alone, but is in of itself the only thing that constitutes itself as being like great or excellent, right? It's supposed to stand almost outside of... Mm -hmm. God. Could it stand outside of culture? I don't know if that's possible. So it's... Let's suspend that for now. Just okay. say it's something that's just great in and of itself. Well, it's something that can exist outside the human artifice. Let's say that. Which for a rent broadly is culture. Yeah. I, I yeah. I feel like there's there's an absence of that term in here. And then I, yeah, I, she doesn't. You're right. Like what what does that it. look like here? But okay, so if if art is what exists outside of human artifice in in some capacity, then then it stands outside of what? that realm of. The, the human condition? Mm -mm. No, 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 no. It's... I mean, it links back to immortality and durability. Yeah. Of you... I mean, and art is the most durable of objects of work because it doesn't get used and so the... And for a rent, uh, what wears down durability is usage. Um, so, for... Arendt, the work of art, is the only example, the only tangible example of what immortality looks like. It's the work of mortal hands that becomes immortal. And this is what she's trying to demonstrate, what she's trying to illustrate about the idea of immortality. Because, I mean, well, it depends on the table. But um, I think I'd be prepared to throw out a table before a work of art, whatever is classified as work. I uh, but before a painting, let's say. Yeah, me too. Um, but why, right? But then, so, and for some reason. Well, it, but, 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 but because I don't know. It's just the. Well, I mean, for, 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 for one, um, the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, for, 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 because other objects seem more disposable. Yeah. Um, and we make less, less efforts to preserve, um, that chair. Yeah, we do for like a really great photograph or a really 
beautiful painting. But it doesn't mean that um, more more labor has necessarily gone in. Like, is like uh, uh, even, well, even very specialized, very specialized kind of labor, I think. But you could get right. But why? Well, you, know, you can have a crappy painting and a really beautiful table. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, let's assume like because. Let's assume that the table is not in itself like a work of art. Even no. like, like the table I'm using here, like it's just some no. desk. Um, but if okay, if you have a work of art that's like a, you know, if Jackson Pollock just just took a paintbrush and threw it at the the canvas and sold it to someone, that person would probably be more willing to keep the canvas if they had the choice than. Then keep the the their dining room table, or, mm -hmm. or let's assume it's just a, like a table, like it's just a, I got it at some other some secondhand maybe or something mm -hmm. like that. More labor was put into that table, and that table serves more of a use value. Yet it doesn't transcend the work of art that sits on the wall. That yeah. took it took a millisecond to make. Because I think that the thought thought process of the work of art is less repeatable than that of the table. Right, you can ne you can yeah, 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 replicate yeah, yeah. that. You that. can make the same table over and over again. That's a good point. Uh, but, I mean, especially with the Jackson Pollock painting. That, I mean, have you seen a Jackson Pollock oh, in yeah. person? Oh, not in person, no. Why? Oh, yeah, but, but, I, I only have the internet. Anyway, in purpose, in person, in purpose, the depth of painting is, is, is crazy, like it sticks out an inch. Uh, over the canvas, right? I mean, like that isn't replicable. Yeah, that's that's complete. That's completely unique. That's that's um, individual to what he was doing that day uh, with the paint. Whereas with the table, the idea is always still in the craftsman's head, yeah. and they can they can do the same piece over and over again. Yeah, uh, but but this is uh, this is definitely a a Western paradigm for making art. Uh, but in the East. Especially in China, they have a, a different conception of of, of preservation. Um, here in the West, the preservation of the artwork is all about uh, keeping the original and trying to restore it to the point that uh, trying to restore it to what it looked like when it was originally produced. Whereas in um, in China and Japan. The idea of restoration is just creating a completely new copy. Right. Interesting. Um, so, 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 for, so Arendt's idea of the uniqueness of the work of art um, operates really great in the West. Doesn't fly so well in the in the East. Right. Yeah. But, but, but because of just different conceptions of what preservation and restoration of the work of art mean. Yeah. Oh God, that's interesting. Uh, I'm gonna stew over that one for a while. Yeah. Especially as you, like, if you start to consider a table that is treated like work of art, like someone, like a like a master craft. Well, it's like a, one of the really great um, sofas, the Chesterfield or the. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like the uh, um, a good sofa. <laughs> a great sofa. I mean, like the um, people rave about these. Items of furniture all the time. It could be a Chesterfield. I've heard that term before. Oh, I don't know if it's like no, no. Creative. Chesterfield is just something that I've come up with. It's very close. Um, it's it's also the song about the bare naked ladies song. So this is Canadian culture. You should understand this. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Full frontal. Uh, bare naked ladies are not not exactly my cup of tea, but uh, yeah. yeah. But are they your bowl of poutine? Um, well, the cup of tea is you, man. The cup of tea is you. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Um, the the table. Is, the table. Um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, this is what the Bauhaus was all about, which I which I think provides a good uh, um, counterbalance to. Um, Arendt's argument about the work of art and um, other works of, uh, of fabrication with people like the Bauhaus where they were trying to make these ordinary use of ordinary objects like chairs and tables into works of art um, so I, 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 I feel like Arendt's distinction between the work of art and the product of fabrication doesn't go that far. I mean, it, 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 it's great on paper, but if you run with it, then it doesn't. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't go. Doesn't go the different. Doesn't cover the distance. Yeah. Oh, it didn't come up with all these different contingent scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read there's definitely a thinker that you have to take on her own terms. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, re really, you do. Yeah. But I love her for it. I, yeah. I really, I really do like this book. Um, yeah, I don't know. What else? You got anything else? You want to talk about anything else? I, I, I would like a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll we'll stop it there we'll stop then. For a second, yeah. Am I good? So, irreversibility, unreversibility? Oh uh, well, no. I mean, I, I don't know. I have a glass of wine. You have a bottle of rum. So. Um, well, I, th I think we really need to deal with unpredictability first. <laughs> unpredictability, that would, that would fit. Yeah, so I mean, if, if, for Arendt, Arendt understands like, that there are two problems that arise out of action the same way that there are problems that arise out of labour and work. I mean, she's not like an uncritical um, advocate of action by any means. Um, mm -hmm. But what she does conclude is that these problems of action, irreversibility, unpredictability. Earlier in the book, she talks about anonymous anonymity as a problem of action, but she doesn't deal with it, or at least she can't find a solution to it. Um, or at least she doesn't find a solution to it in this book. Um, but in the final sections of action, she talks about uh, the power of forgiveness um, as a way to cope with the irreversibility of human action of when you do something in the world and you initiate this process that triggers a chain reaction of reactions and actions. Um, the only thing that can stop that well, two things can actually stop that when she writes about it. Uh, the one, the main one is forgiveness, because that's the the one that really looks good on the bumper sticker. But um, <laughs> there, there's also punishment. Yeah. It's all about a, a way to bring an end to the beginning that action brings into the world and the unintended consequences that uh, come out of that. Um, and I was thinking uh, um, late last night when I was um, reading this section, of like, what are the limits of forgiveness? Um, I, 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 I think that she puts it, I think that she provides an answer to this question um, in the form of like a radical evil 
and in the sense that can't put it. Um, the, the only thing that sort of actions that should be forgiven are those that have unintended consequences. If you intend to do evil, then you cannot be forgiven. Um, and I think it's difficult to. Um, well, how should I put this? Um, I mean, what do, what do, it's difficult to tell what people's intentions are, and I guess this is the basis of our of our legal system, because um, you can plead insanity for one instances, and I, I guess not being in full control of your cognitive faculties means that you're able to be forgiven or able to be punished. Um, uh, but vengeance is different. Vengeance um, doesn't really bring an end to the process of action, it merely continues it. Um, but yeah, for, 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 forgiveness is, uh, is the um, thing that our Christianity really adds to politics, in her view. Um, and then there's unpredictability, which we kind of discussed earlier of providing uh, a kind of stability or a sort of certainty to, um, uh, to the human world. Um, and I mean, when we're, when we're born into the societies we're born in, we take on um, certain responsibilities or people who are responsible for us as our guardians. Uh, but we have these kind of responsibilities of like, don't kill anyone, or don't play your music too loud past midnight. Yeah. So those kind of things, which uh, sort of means that people are able to go along their everyday business um, without f fearing for their lives. Because if you uh, if you try to imagine living in a world of complete unpredictability, it's fear would paralyze you, I imagine. Um, yeah. So I, the, the, the power to promise means that we can sort of wake up in the morning and just live normal, relatively normal lives. But I mean, and within that, there's the sort of stratification of privilege, which is something rent doesn't address. But uh, I think that it's Good that Arendt addresses the shortcomings of action, um, which, which 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 take on a, a strange tone in the section *Vida Activa* and the modern age, where she talks about the process. I mean, where she continues her discussion of the process character of action, and I, and I wondered about uh, global warming in the sense of. Uh, human beings interfering with natural processes, and that, uh, and in these processes, uh, are continuing or reacting to certain other uh, human actions, and get uh, building in in consequence, um, and and complexity, because that that's where I mean that's that's the most 
pressing outcome of human action today, I suppose, which would probably outrage Arendt because it is a threat to not only the human world but the earth and both of those are really the foundations of any conditions of human life. Well, that's a nice depressing uh, note to hit there. But I don't think it's an, there's an optimistic future for, for our end. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. that, the, that we can kind of reclaim something that, that she would deem to be, you know, in, in the service of the good. But I'm, I'm, I was a little bit confused. I wonder if you could elaborate on it a little, a little more. What role action plays in terms of forgiveness, if any at all? Let's, let's turn to the <coughs> uh, text. Um, so here we are. You just got it like that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> just open it straight up. Yeah, Yeah, for, for forgiveness. Um, oh, I see. Yes. Um, so forgiveness in her terms is not a way of reacting to someone's original acting action, but a way of acting anew and unexpectedly. Right. Okay. Of of of, of, of well, said, this is where her reference to Jesus really plays perfectly, in the sense of turning over cheek, um, of not retaliating the way that the other person would expect you to, if they'd offended you or trespassed against you, or at least, you know, um, done something to you or um, affected you by their actions in a way that they didn't uh, anticipate. Um, so, uh, instead of vengeance, which as I said earlier, is just reaction and is contributing to the process character of the initial action. Forgiveness uh, puts an end to the original action and starts a new process. Um, and she writes about it as a... Uh, so she says that forgiving and the relationship it establishes is always eminently personal, though not necessarily individual or private affair, in which what was done is forgiven for the sake of who did it. Um, and then she goes on to talk about love as um, an anti-political human force. Right. Um, and the political equivalent of that being respect of um, this kind of basic level of human dignity that we ascribe to one another without being friends or without being um, kind of intimate with one another. It, 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 it's, it, respect is the force that means you don't like push someone out of the way when you're queuing up for a bus. Um, <laughs> which means that, like, that, 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 yeah, the world is not people just trying to get their own way in in most instances, I mean, the, the, the world is definitely a product of people trying to 
seek their own advantage, of course, but the way that we interact with one another when we perceive one another as equals um, is generally respectful. Yeah. Um, but then, I mean, we, we have to consider um, problems like racism sexism yeah which is, which yeah, is yeah. all the way which is about withholding uh, yeah those, those things throw a throw a pretty big wrench in, uh, 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 in, uh, in, uh, in this project uh, uh, and which is why you know i mean should we forgive and this is the this is the question of the me too movement i suppose if we can drag something contemporary into this discussion of should we go the route of forgiveness, vengeance, or punishment? Um, and punishment is probably the best way, I think. Uh, I definitely brings an end to the action. I don't think that um, is that, 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 that what was the case? Like the case of someone cutting off someone's penis for for sexual assault, something along those lines. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I feel like that happened a while ago. Uh, but yeah, that's vengeance, and uh, forgiveness is is rare. It wouldn't occur in the legal system. I, I think, as Arendt says, it's something very personal. Yeah. Um, I, I think that as a society, uh, punishment is the way we should uh, deal with uh, crimes. But then, uh, this is where... I mean, Arendt is great at sparking off discussions, but she's not great at ending them. I mean, like, uh, well, what, what is proportional justice? Because, I mean, people from different populations uh, have they both experienced the force of the law in different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, for, 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 for Arendt is the philosopher of worldliness who works as long as the world doesn't get involved. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, Oh, what else? You got anything else in there? <laughs> well, I've still got a bit of wine left, so I, I should have something left. Um, <clears throat> I do, I mean... Why do you think people have taken up a rent again? Because, I mean, she's popular again. Especially after Trump. I mean, the, the, the origins into... The origin of totalitarianism was a bestseller after the election. It was the wrong book to read after. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I, yeah, I mean, no, no. Go back to the second. Go back to the section. Yeah, it was the wrong. It was the wrong book. Uh, no, to read. <laughs> don't pretend that this is fine. <laughs> don't pretend that you didn't press the pause button and then we have to do this whole section again. It was the wrong fucking book to read after the American election because in the first section of that book. Um, <laughs> She says that nationalism is different from totalitarianism, and Trump is a nationalist. Um, so I think Origins of Totalitarianism was the wrong book to read after the American election. The Human Condition isn't even the fucking right book to read after the American election. Um, I, I don't know. What, I mean, what what is the right book to read after a political event like this? I don't, I don't know. Why, uh, why, 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 what is the right book for our time? Why is a rent... Selected as one of those, one of the guides for us. Um, 
Because, as we've discussed, there are a lot of things she puts in uh, this book that are outdated and impractical and irrelevant. But um, she, she's popular, and maybe it's just the readability of her prose. Maybe it's just because the, the people with the rights to her books have more money, so are able to publish it quicker. Um, who, who knows what the um, the, yeah. the reasons are? I mean, but, but, but people, we're definitely at a stage where people are desperate for um, answers of some sort or another. Um, and then they bring on to certain, to like the yeah. science thing, like the Neil deGrasse Tyson or or the Sam Harris types that give them oh, yeah. that purport to give them these answers, right? To get them out of these holes, these. He's ruts. Uh, well, I mean, definitely with Stephen Pinker. I think that Stephen Pinker's new book on the Enlightenment has come at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. after the Trump election, where a lot of liberals, liberal-minded people, are like, "Oh my God!" Like the uh, this is the um, classic Obama, classic Obama phrase of uh, the arc of history may be long, but it tends towards justice. Yeah. And a lot of people who were liberal-minded sort of latched onto that and like, yeah, America is just generally tended, tending towards this more socially liberal society. All we need to do is just reform and reform and reform. And then Trump happens. And they're like, oh my goodness, maybe history isn't linear. Um, and then Stephen Pinker comes along and goes, no, 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 no. just look at these graphs. Um, yeah, yeah. We're on the way up. <laughs> we're on the way up. We're going to get there. Um, I, I, he doesn't take account of rupture um, at all, and doesn't take account of the the passions behind reason, um, and a rent to a certain extent doesn't do that either. I I, I, I do wonder where she puts passion in her conceptual system at all, because she's, she's definitely critical of Plato prioritizing reason over passion, but then she doesn't really have it anywhere in her book at all, except for love. But love for her is definitely a, like anti-political force. So maybe she is just as guilty of the crimes that we accused of these other kind of pseudo-enlightenment figures of our own time. Yeah? Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe people were having the same discussion about Arendt in the 50s and 60s of going like, she's just this liberal apologist who's... No, I mean, no, actually, no. I don't think that would happen. I mean, she's too, too pessimistic for that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like, um, she wouldn't fit into that category no, so no. neatly. Like, it, it's, it's too complicated. For yeah. That. Like... And I, I don't want to just give it credit based on its uh, complexity, but it seems as though this this isn't intended for just anyone, no. right? Like, this is a very difficult text, at mm. least I think. Whereas I feel like those texts that come out today, are there, there is like a... It is part and parcel of that system of equalization, that kind of the social, in a sense, mm -hmm. rendering accessible... Everything to well, it, it, it's like um, what Ortega E. Gasset talks about in the Revolt of the Masses, right? About how um, the problem with massification, which Arendt would describe as mass society, is the fact that the commonplace, knowing itself to be commonplace, 
demands that everything else is commonplace and completely rejects anything else that's non-conformist, anything that uh, could be described as excellence, anything that could be described as abnormal. And this is the problem with the masses. I think that the, 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 this is the audience for um, what might be described today as pseudo-enlightenment. Um, they're writing for the general reader, and the general reader doesn't exist. It's a subject position that ordinary people have to adopt. Yeah, um, which um, I mean to, to go off on the um, a tangent, like Derrida completely detested this type of thinking that there was this uh, general reader because the reader was always, you know, um, moving around in their own position. There, yeah. there, there, there was no sort of like general reader to begin with. I mean, like the the whole idea of a general reader is pat patronizing. Uh, it's a sense that uh, someone can't be capable of the type of higher thought or specialization that the author is capable of or that the expert is capable of. Yeah. Yeah, I would certainly agree. But um, I don't know. Is there anything else? <laughs> you got anything more to add? Um, <laughs> We 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 actually we recorded a whole bunch of this, but we lost it. What? Well, well, no, you you lost it. <laughs> I apparently I paused the track at some point. Yeah. A very unbeknownst well, I, to I mean, myself. To, to, to be honest, that would have probably been the most uh, durable part of the, the uh, podcast. don't say that. I was thinking about that. No, I mean, the, 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 where the discussion went after that was a bit more uh, passionate because we were both frustrated about the, the loss of the recording. So I, 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 I think it was for the better. <laughs> it could be. Well, any, anything, any, any last words? Any, any last words? Um, I think that the human condition is just one of those texts that you need to reread. I mean, there, there, there was the, there's a great line by uh, Calvino about classics of um, uh, classics are the books that people say they're always rereading. You know. Yeah. Um, in the sense of, and, and it, it's kind of criticism of like pretentiousness in literary circles. Like, uh, we, you don't want to accept that you're reading this book for the first time. And I think the, the the human condition is one of those books that everyone needs to read for the first time, and then. Read from that point forward. They need to keep read for the first it. time, and then yeah. read for the first time. <laughs> Why well, is it really? For, it, I mean, it, it, it's definitely one of those books that feels uh, fresh every time you pick it up. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, it's a rarity. No, it's a great book, and I'm. It's I. I like this. Of like I like I said a little earlier. I think of all the thinkers that I'm like, kind of like. I have my reservations about it, kind of problematic. I'm like, eh. But Hannah Arendt really, like, sticks to me. I have trouble justifying Heidegger, but I really like, I really like Arendt. Yeah. Um, she's a great writer. Mm -hmm. I, I really like, and I, and I like what she's saying. But I, I guess on that note, we can, we can sign off. Yeah, we can uh, conclude. For anyone that has any, any beef for us, if you're, uh, if you're out you know, there. <laughs> if you're out there and you actually listen to this. 
<laughs> I say that at the end every time. Yeah. If anyone actually made it this far, so if anyone actually made it this far and you think that we said something dumb or you disagree with us, YouTube has a comment section for a reason. Make it apparent. Uh, but otherwise, say goodbye, Andrew. Yeah, goodbye. See you again soon. Well, he like speak to you again soon, and we'll never see yeah. each other. Yeah, I will. We, we hope. We hope. That'd be creepy. We never talked about a space of appearance as reality for our rents, but maybe uh, that'd probably be fitting for a podcast. That's totally oral. When we come, we we were talking about doing another talk on like another another uh, another author here, but uh, but for now, for any of those that listen this far, thanks a lot, and I'll uh, or we'll uh, we'll see you later.